Happy New Year and welcome to the first joint podcast between CIMAT, CIMA and Columbia Global Centers Tunis. I'm Youssef Sharif, Director of the Columbia Global Centers Tunis, greeting you with my colleague, Dr. Larissa Shomiak, Director of CIMAT. The goal of our three centers, CIMAT, CIMA and Columbia Global Centers Tunis, is to foster scholarly interactions between Maghrebi scholars, first of all, and between them and their peers from the respective universities we work with. CIMAT and CIMA are the overseas research centers of AIMS, the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. As for Columbia Tunis, it is specifically linked to Columbia University in New York. Today, January 14, 2021, marks exactly 10 years since Tunisia's autocrat and second president, Zain al-Abidin Ben Ali, left the country for a life in exile in Saudi Arabia. It has been a decade since democracy entered the mold of Tunisian politics. Free press and free Facebook is now taken for granted by a majority of Tunisians. And elections and protest movements became regular scenes for anyone living in Tunisia or visiting the country. But it was not always the case and nothing lasts forever. It is therefore our great honor and pleasure to host Professor Lisa Anderson and Dr. Tarak Kahlawi for a discussion and a conversation with Dr. Larissa Shomia. Professor Anderson is the President Emeritus of the American University in Cairo, the Dean Emeritus of the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia University, and a political scientist who specializes in the Maghreb with numerous influential publications in academic and policy outlets, from the definitive state and social transformation in Tunisia and Libya, to her reflections on political transformations in the Middle East and North Africa, the 2011 uprisings and beyond. Dr. Kahlawi is Professor of History at the South Mediterranean University in Tunis and former Director General of the Tunisian Institute for Strategic Studies at the Presidency of the Republic of Tunisia. He is a politician active since dictatorship and a frequent commentator on Tunisian and Arab affairs in Arabic and English media outlets. His latest book on nationalist leader Ahmed Ben Salah was published in 2020 and he is currently working on a book on the rise of populism in Tunisia. And finally, Dr. Shomiak, the discussion lead, is the director of CIMAT. She is also a political scientist who publishes on Tunisian affairs, and she's the author of the forthcoming book, Archipelagos of Dissent, Protest and Politics in Tunisia. Larissa, I give you the floor. Thank you so much, Yusuf, and thank you um, to Lisa and Tarek for joining us for our discussion um, on the 10-year anniversary today. At the 10-year anniversary of one of Tunisia's most important historical moments, we would like to reflect on the original sins of the Bourguiba and Ben Ali state-building experiences. Professor Anderson, you wrote State and Social Transformation in Tunisia and Libya, 1820 to 1980. Can you tell our listeners about that important project and how today you would evaluate Tunisia's state-building experience? And then I will turn to Tarek Kahlawi and ask in his critical reading of Tunisia's history, how do you reflect on those important moments and do you see a continuity of those original sins into the contemporary democracy building experience? Well, thank you very much, Larissa, and thank you both in your personal and professional capacities um, for hosting this podcast. I'm delighted to be able to spend some time with Professor Kahlawi and you in this discussion. I think the conflation of Bourguiba and Ben Ali is actually a little bit of a mistake. I think the history of the 
creation of modern Tunisia goes well into the 19th century and reflects in many ways a kind of capacity on the part of the leaders, the visionaries of Tunisia's independence movement, as they thought about what they wanted the country to be. They didn't simply want to be independent of France, which clearly was an important element of their project, but they also had a vision of a country that was quite what it, we now call sort of modern, secular, liberal. They had a sense of what a, a positive, not necessarily universally accepted, but a positive sense of what they wanted Tunisia to be. And in fact, I think that's pretty unusual. Most of the independence movements we saw during that period knew what they didn't want to be, which was a colony, but not necessarily what they did want to be. And I think Bourguiba's role in that was particularly important. He was personally clearly an elitist, uh, uh, somewhat intolerant of opposition, even in his heyday, um, paternalistic, so forth and so on. But he was a lawyer. He was committed to public administration, committed to an idea of a civic political space that I think was quite unusual when you think about it. There haven't been that many presidents who've been lawyers in this part of the world, as opposed to uh, military figures or business people and so forth. So um, I think he really needs to be credited, um, particularly during the early the late period of the independence movement and the first couple of decades of independence with a with a, a quite remarkable vision for Tunisia. As I say, it was not universally accepted. He was got into considerable, and we can discuss this more, but considerable difficulties with the then Islamist movements and was, as I said, intolerant of opposition of various kinds. But many of the features of Tunis that we appreciate today are reflections of his era. Obviously, Ben Ali was a very different figure. He normalized, if you will, a kind of expectation of repression and expectation of corruption and a sort of what might be called performance politics, that as long as no one can tell what you're doing, then you must be succeeding, which I think was very damaging to Tunisia's sort of political history and the legacies of these two figures for the post-uprising period. But I think it's important that we draw that distinction, and I think we ought to begin to look at some of these legacies, if you will, in a somewhat more nuanced way. Finally, let me just point out that, you know, this is in contrast to virtually all of the other countries of the region. Again, Borghibo is a lawyer, but had a positive vision. One of the few other figures like that, I think, was Ataturk, whom Borghibo admired. And so I think there's a distinction in the character and aspirations of these political figures that are part of the legacies of, that we live with today. Thank you. Tarek, your thoughts? Thank you for uh, inviting me to this panel. Thank you for Larissa and Yusuf for organizing this. And um, I'm, I'm really honored that uh, Professor Anderson is the, on the same panel. And uh, thank you for, for choosing this topic. Well, the 10th anniversary of the um, revolution, uh, I don't think it's uh, any different from the 9th or the 11th anniversary. They are the same. And um, uh, it's um, uh, what, what really makes all of this the same is that uh, major expectations of the revolution were not met. Uh, and uh, many Tunisians, um, as they they can see that um, they, they achieved at least 
a basic functioning democracy, uh, yet at the same time, in terms of uh, economic and social reforms, things are still stalling. And if we um, we go, as you said, to the original sense of uh, what really made this transition difficult, especially from the economic and social perspective, it's, yes, we can go back to the um, beginnings of the post-colonial state. And I, I would agree with um, Professor Anderson when she said that Burgiba had a project at some point. Well, yes, in contrast with, um, with other leaders in the region, maybe in contrast with, uh, with, 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 the, with the kings of the Gulf states, maybe in contrast with, uh, uh, with people like uh, Gaddafi or, or others, yes, maybe. Uh, and in terms of the generic project, when it comes to things like women's rights, yes, he had a clear vision and he introduced major reforms and he went straight to the point. But when it comes to economic and social reforms, the structures of the Tunisian economy, I think he had no clue. And uh, that's why in the first two years of the post-colonial state, he was really not basically clear about his goals. And um, he was somehow lost in the beginning of the transition. But the project was there and it was not Bourguiba's project. It was UGTT's project. UGTT is, um, uh, has been working on a vision since 1954. And this came with the presence of someone like Ahmed bin Salah at the um, leadership of UGTT. Ahmed bin Salah and other leaders, Mustafa Filali and, uh, and others who decided to prepare a vision before even the independence. 54, 54. Five, they they actually prepared a whole program going even to the details of the industry, commerce, agriculture, uh, something that was missing for the party. So these guys were at the same time party members, Ahmed bin Salah, Mustafa Filali, much of the leadership of UGTT, but they were not the leaders of the party. And because of that program, of the UGTT program, they were seen by Bourguiba, especially after the, um, this, this beginning, this problematic beginning of the post-colonial state with no program. And he looked at them at UGTT and Bin Salah and their vibrant and dynamic process, and he just adopted. And he went also with the wave because by the end of the 50s, early 60s, much of the post-colonial state building was in relation to cooperatives, some kind of local uh, socialist interpretation in different formats. And that was what was Bin Salah offering. He was not offering a communist alternative as he was always trying to explain. He was offering a, a kind of social democrat uh, alternative, especially under the influence of the Scandinavian model and he said that many times and um, um, when, when I say he said that many times that's in the um, uh, documents of 54 and especially 55-56 where he says very clearly that uh, they were advised by uh, the International Cooperatives Alliance and the Scandinavian uh, cooperatives as well. So from that perspective Burgiba used Bin Salah, used the program but when he saw that Bin Salah might be a threat for, for his position by the end of the 60s then he just got rid of Bin Salah and he brought in another another major figure of the party Hedi Nwira but with that he changed the course so after the wave of the 60s some kind of socialist framework. Uh, by the 1970s, he went into um, more or less a neoliberal position with Hedin Wira. And as he was doing this, he was eating these men. He was eating his, his, an eater of, them, um, of, his, of his associates, basically, his um, political cannibalist. And so he was, he, was, he was not really interested in the program, he was just going with the waves and, and, and using these different major 
figures to go by uh, a certain historical period. With Ben Ali, we we had a different uh, we had a different format. He he hated politicians. He uh, uh, he he thought that um, and intellectuals, by the way, and he he wanted to have like technocrats who just execute orders, do whatever he orders them to do, and also technical bureaucrats who would actually be bridging somehow, have some kind of a bridge with the international, uh, with the international monetary institutions. So he promoted this, this idea of technocrats rather than politicians. Uh, doesn't mean that he's, he was using the best technocrats, but um, that's how he proceeded. And these two original sins, the missing program, the void of a program, and the primacy of technocrats over politicians are going to continue on and go on uh, in uh, after the revolution. They're going to stay there and they're going to be even adopted by politicians at some point. So politicians with no programs and politicians who would rely on technocrats in running the affairs of the state. And with that, the economic and social major problems uh, remain just intact with, with no solutions, with no clear structural solutions. And which, which was the reason why uh, this whole thing happened between December 17th and January 14th. So the tension, Tarek, that you bring up between political, or in some cases political slash intellectual and technocratic solution has certainly been a tension that has defined post-revolutionary governments, um, especially after the uh, Troika government that ruled from 2011 until 2013. So this brings me back, this brings me not back, this brings me forward um, from some of the historical tensions that we talked just talked about about leadership and also decisions to the question that a extraordinary amount of political scientists and social scientists and policy people have been interested in, which is democracy and democratization. One of the reasons why we started with a state building question is because oftentimes in contemporary research, these have been deconnected, but I would like to try to reconnect them in this discussion that we're having today and think about, in my question, I said hopes, but really what the debates were in 2011 or what what the, the hopes um, at that particular moment was from the transition of state building to democracy building. So Lisa, you have written extensively on the revolutions of 2011 and Tarek, um, you have reflected on those both intellectually, um, but also you have worked through one of the most contentious and complicated political moments in uh, Tunisia's democracy experience as a political actor. Can you both uh, reflect back on these moments and where you saw at that particular time the uprisings would lead? I think for Lisa's question, there's an interesting comparative angle perhaps, but not, I'm not forcing it. And then um, Tarek perhaps on Tunisia specifically, but also on your more comparative cross North Africa work when you were at um, ETEF. Well, let me first agree with Tarek that I think one of the interesting features of the Bourguiba legacy is a sort of, if you will, agnosticism about economic policy. I think he was, you know, quite sure of himself and sure of his vision of what the country should look like in social terms, in terms of, say, as he pointed, as Tark pointed out, women's rights and so forth and so on. But economic policy wasn't something that engaged him particularly, and he was perfectly willing to delegate that, and in doing so may actually have eaten the people to whom he delegated it. But it wasn't something of particular appeal to him. And of course, I think that's also true in a different way of Ben Ali, who was, I think it's it's actually generous to say that he delegated to technocrats. I don't think there was a great deal of 
even technocratic expertise in the inner circles in that era. But be that as it may, I think what's interesting about the focus on democracy and democratization, both in Tunisia and regionally, is the extent to which everybody instantly, starting in 2011 in the region became political scientists. They wanted to know about electoral systems. They wanted to know about political parties, how to, you know, how to candidates campaign, on and on and on. The, you know, nobody, nobody asked about economic policy ever at all. It was very rarely even part of the campaign platforms of any of these parties. And you could, you, that was noticeable from the very beginning. And it was a concern because much of the institutional development was going to rest, rise or fall on the capacity to really develop, implement, monitor, reform, so forth, economic policy across the board. That was not only true in Tunisia, but it was certainly true in Tunisia. The extent to which, and again, this is something I would very much reinforce that Tarek that said, the extent to which Tunisia has been able to have more sophisticated conversations about economic policy than any of the other countries that saw uprisings in that period is very much a reflection of a century-old labor movement and a insistence on the part of that labor movement in continuing debates about what economic policy should look like and who should be the beneficiaries and who should be involved at the table in discussions of economic policy and so forth. But I worry that both the academics, including me and most of my colleagues, focus on political institutions on elections and parties and so forth and so on are sort of taking the form for the substance. If these things don't produce substantive political debate about economic policy or social policy or foreign policy or whatever, this is about how to organize policy disputes and debates. And if we continue to insist that the form has to be respected and we really don't care about the substance, then I think both as academics, we're missing the, we're sort of missing the, the point of all of this. And I think we are, in some ways, the democracy promotion industry is misleading people who are being advised that most, you know, once you have your political parties and your electoral system, then, you know, the system will continue automatically. And I, that's simply not true. So again, I think Tunisia is very well served by the existence of a labor movement and therefore of other kinds of economic organizations, including, you know, business community organization. There is a, an understanding that these are parts of the debate that are essential to the development of, a, of policy that makes any sense. And that debate can be organized lots of ways. We are accustomed to thinking it can be organized democratically. I think the institutional issues are far less important than we have thought. And the policy debates themselves are far more important. And again, compared to most of the other countries, Tunisia is doing well on that. But compared to what needs to happen in Tunisia, it's still focused a lot on, you know, how many political parties there are and what the electoral system is and so forth and so on in a way that's not particularly productive. Thank you, Lisa. And now to Tarek, what are your reflections on the question of democracy as well as democratization? 
what um, uh, what we have is different actors uh, in the post-revolutionary period. What we have is different actors who are not basically helping in solving these problems. So first of all, we have political actors who do not have a program, but they are also dominated by the 50 to 20 families of uh, the rentier economy, the economy de rente, uh, who were born under Hedinuira mainly. Their origins go back even before the post-colonial state, but the main families go back to the 70s. And these adapted well to the, um, to the democracy. So the, those who resist reform, those who actually built their fortune on this sick economy, that was basically nurtured by this family apparatus model, uh, the Ben Ali family leading and nurturing these uh, 15 to 20 families. After the revolution, they just, just dominated the whole thing. And they, uh, by funding parties, by uh, being present in the media, they became basically the effective rulers of the system. And political parties, the new political parties, we're under the influence of, of, this, uh, of, of this group of uh, companies and family companies. And of, of course, the, these guys are going to resist any major reforms in the private sector. And it's the private sector that is expected to provide uh, so many jobs, especially with the burden of so many uh, financial uh, restraints over the uh, budget, especially after the revolution and the drop in major resources in tourism and, and so on and so forth. Um, so that made, um, first of all, one major player that is political parties under siege with these, um, with these families. The, the other uh, major player is the international institutions that are funding uh, either international institutions or um, international political players, the US, the European Union, the Gulf states, who are not basically providing reform, but they are providing technical bureaucratic assistance that is just reproducing the same problems. The, the only answer is just sell or uh, restrict budget um, or end budget deficit. That's the, it's a technical approach. And uh, as it was a little different than uh, the 15, 20 families of the, um, the Rontier economy, but it was not providing the right solution. UGTT, on the other hand, as it feels that it's under the social pressure from the bottom up, basically, from its uh, uh, union base, pushing for more demands, uh, and um, the state basically facing these budget restrictions, uh, UGTT has become, little by little, a conservative uh, force that is basically not really willing to help in terms of reforming the major state companies. And here, we're stuck basically in a democracy that is, uh, yes, maybe, providing some kind of political transition, some, um, some basic system of free elections, many parties ruling and not really ruling, the, the facade of a democracy, but a democracy that is not delivering in terms of economic and social uh, reforms. And that basically is, is causing this, uh, this tendency of many uh, of the electorate, of the Tunisian electorate, not basically to believe in the party system. And that's why the 2019 elections were tending to find just individuals who seem to be anti-system, even though they're not necessarily anti-system. And these guys won the, the 2019 elections. And here I'm talking about Kais Saeed, Nabil Karoui, uh, 
particular karama, either as individuals like Qais Said or as parties. And um, now the mainstream parties like Nahda uh, is, is losing uh, a lot of its electorate. Social Democrats are not able to basically come with a major win. So we don't have, again, we're, we're going to have a problem of politicians who, uh, in this case, don't even pretend to have programs. Uh, they're going to tell you, well, we're going to go and follow what the people uh, want. Shabu, you read. So that's, that's, the, that's the problem now. The, what we have now by the 10th anniversary is that a more complicated situation where the major actors might not be able to deliver, at least in the near future. Lars, may I sort of jump he- in here? Because I think, I think this is exactly right. And it's something that, the, again, the political science and policy community really needs to think more systematically about. These kinds of institutions that we value so much, that are these sort of formal democratic institutions, are increasingly in Tunisia, as Tarek, I think, very eloquently points out, but in other countries as well, being used for anti-democratic purposes. And that that in the long run is going to be damaging to the institutions themselves because people will abandon any kind of respect for or commitment to democratic institutions because they're not doing what they're, they were ostensibly intended to do. And in that sense, I think this question of whether there is respect for the rules of the game, there clearly isn't an elite a respect for the rules of the game constitutional in Tunisia at this point. But increasingly, I think you see in Tunisia what you see in many other places in the world, which is a sort of defection from the whole system and a willingness to turn the whole thing over and say, this isn't working for us, and therefore it shouldn't be working for anyone else. And the in that sense, the UGTT has become representatives of a kind of labor aristocracy that if they can't get out of that frame of mind, they are going to be seen increasingly as part of the problem, which would be a very unfortunate end to this century of militance that has been, I think, overall quite important and effective in Tunisia. So I just want to sort of reiterate that there is an irony in the democracy promotion, because if it doesn't have any substance, then it under the institutions will be undermined by their very fragility. Thank you, Lisa and Tarek. And Lisa, I'm really glad you brought up the kind of the strange democracy promotion that leaves out large questions around the economy and then also the separation of it from a political solution like Tarek has been talking about, which then again is stalled by the dependency on IFIs and other bilateral partners as well. But one of the most interesting things that has happened in the last 10 years within the democracy promotion community is that this idea that the calls for jobs, so they like singling out the revolutionary calls for job and replacing historical labor questions and labor the way it's made itself into the most contentious political moments in the last 10 years, not just in Tunisia, but worldwide, into a development democracy promotion program around job creation. So now you see these multi-million projects about creating jobs that have nothing to do with the place of labor in politics or the positioning of labor in either the revolutionary movements, pre-revolutionary movements, or the many contentious movements thereafter across the region as well. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad both of you touched on this from kind of very different but super interesting perspectives as well. So the last question, thinking about Lisa's previous work, the, the kind of the historical institutionalism and then Tarek's contribution um, and research in uh, 
not just Tunisia's, but also the Arab world's left, how using, again, this arbitrary 10 years, we can think about academic research and we can think about where you as um, academics uh, working both with students in New York and in Tunis, where a lot of the interesting research um, could go in the next 10 years to answer some of these questions. Um, let me just speak to two of the things that you've raised. I, for obvious reasons, stand where I sit to some degree. And I do think that understanding the historical legacy in a particular country, where it's coming from, shows you something about a likely trajectory. So I am, you know, pleased to say that my what I anticipated in the spring of 2011 would happen in Egypt Libya and Tunisia pretty much did. And if you had paid attention to the history of those three countries, it would be no surprise that the military would be the most important player in Egypt. It would be no surprise that it would be hard to keep together something that approximated a state in Libya. And it would be no surprise that Tunisia would have a much more variegated, diverse, complex set of social actors participating in an effort to construct an alternative regime. And the reason why it would be no surprise is because you had seen some of those dynamics over the course of the preceding half century, as long as you want. So I do think that the revival, um, as I hope it is, of history in the study of politics will contribute to a deeper understanding of what's going on in many of the places in the world. I think political science does suffer from the fact that we behave as if each political moment has no before. And I just think that's a mistake. So to some degree, I think we can look at the framing of this discussion in terms of what political scientists ought to be doing. Um, nobody who studies Tunisia today should not know who Ahmed bin Salah was even if that's not a politically salient question in a survey at this moment. You need to know what kinds of debates have gone on in the past because people, individual citizens, carry some of that with them. So I think that's important. The other thing is, and this is in some ways related, I think is your observation about this preoccupation with job creation. There is similarly a kind of taking the appearance for the reality on this, that if people are employed, that somehow that will mean that they're not going to be making any demands anymore, that that will solve all of our problems, despite the fact that one of the things that happened after the revolution in Tunisia is that now Tunisia has one of the largest budget allocations to employment. They are employing people, the government is employing people in state-owned enterprise and so forth and so on, in a way that's completely economically perverse. So job creation can be arranged. It just has no future and no economic rationale and no kind of way of creating an impulse in an economy. It's a, it's a sop to people who are currently politically worrisome. 
So again, I, I think this conception of how do societies work? What does an economy do? How, do one, how does one think about the relationship of Tunisia's government to its international patrons? And I take Tarek's point, I think that is part of the problem because those international patrons in some ways also want Tunisia to just be quiet and not troubling and not worrisome. And if we give them money and we tell them to do these things, then Tunisia will not be a problem for us in the same way that the Tunisian government is saying, we want these unemployed people to be quiet and to go away and we give them some money, they won't be any trouble to us. So there's this sort of cascading problem of just wanting to figure out some way to get people to stop being troubling, as opposed to really solving what the problems are. And that's, in the long run, not sustainable. Clearly, in a given electoral cycle, it may be sustainable, but in the long run, it's not sustainable. And so I get back to the importance of the long run. One really needs to see what's happening in any given moment in historical perspective. Thank you, Lisa. And now to Tarek, what are your reflections on the question of democracy as well as democratization? One thing to be sure of is, uh, and here I'm, I'm, I'm certainly being biased as a historian, is that yes, um, to, to, to go through this um, period of transition, we need history. Uh, I, I talked about Ben Salah a little uh, earlier. Well, he's still influencing the current economic and social atmosphere and debate, even though sometimes many people don't even know what he was about. But that these views, the, the 1960s, the importance and the primacy of state building uh, and the importance of the social role of the state is still there and UJTT is still defending that view. A few other political parties do that as well. And even those parties at the center, a little bit to the right, like Nahda, uh, cannot go beyond that. They, they, they can't resist that. They have to adopt partly at least this idea of the social role of the, of the state. So that, that we have to go through this long durée understanding of what has been done before to be able to understand uh, why uh, some of the things that are debated now in Tunisia are uh, highly sensitive. Let's start with state companies, um, which is now a huge issue. They are mainly in deficit, budget deficit. They are facing major difficulties. But this high sensitivity towards them is not coming only from the conservative tendency of UGTP. It's also coming from this fear of privatization can go wrong, as it happened in the early 1990s when the main families actually took advantage of privatization. So all of these elements, the, the, the past, how it weighs on the present cannot be understood just by making few surveys on Facebook or even field work to understand the, why some of these issues are sensitive. The issue of secular and Islamic dichotomy sometimes is seen from a formal perspective and, uh, and highly abstract, but it's really complicated. And, and the, 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 the way to look at, um, uh, at this from the from a dichotomy perspective, cannot understand, for instance, a phenomenon like Qais Saeed, who's not Islamist, but he's conservative and competing with the Nahda on the conservative platform. Uh, we cannot understand the coalition of dignity, Tilef Karama, which is Islamist, but not like Nahda. It's some kind of a fusion between populism, uh, some kind of an extremist form of Islam, tending even to Salafism, and uh, on the other hand, some kind of patriotism. And this anti-French 
discourse that is basically appealing to much of the electorate, we cannot understand that without looking at this long durée relationship with France since colonialism afterwards and the resistance of France to be part of reforms in Tunisia, but uh, on the other hand, basically supporting different uh, periods of dictatorship. So that image weighs in and Tinefri uh, Karama plays with that, uh, with, 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 of course, a populist discourse and sometimes a highly opportunistic way of doing this. So it's really this interaction between different fields that we need. Political science is very important for historians as well to look closely at, um, at specific um, issue. And for historians, it would be interesting also to see how political scientists are using surveys and, and, and so on to how, to how to deal with what's going on uh, now, because it's, there is like a distance between historians and current history, what's, what's happening right now. So it's, um, I think we, we have a lot to learn from, from these different fields. And, uh, and, and the Tunisian context is now the focus of so much research. Quantity is good, but uh, we may need more interesting quality in the future. So. Uh, let's hope by the 20th anniversary we're gonna have uh, much better research than uh, than than now and now in terms of quality and hopefully by that time the goals of the revolution at least partly are gonna be achieved or i mean maybe or unfortunately by the 20th anniversary we may not have even uh, democracy because i i truly believe with what's happening everywhere that democracy is not guaranteed even in countries with a very long history and tradition of democracy I would like to thank Lisa and Tarek once more for joining us today in this discussion at the 10th anniversary of Tunisia's revolution. And I would like to pick up on Tarek's invitation to think about these issues from a long durée perspective, not just at moments, at anniversary moments like today, but generally guiding our research and our scholarly inquiry. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrippodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CEMAT newsletter at www.cematmagrib.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.